walking through Mark a little bit of time, Mark 4, there's uh, three major parables in Mark 4. We're going to look at each one of them. Uh, a parable is a comparison um, that conveys a truth in concrete terms versus abstract terms. So particularly in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, parables is the major way that Jesus instructs the crowd. You don't see it as much in John, but in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when he's talking to a crowd, he's usually using parables. And it sounds something like the kingdom of God is like, or the kingdom of heaven is like, and then it's like a mustard seed, it's like a man sowing seed in a field, it's like a net. He's uh, taking something from everyday life, comparing it to the kingdom of God, and to, in order to communicate a truth. A parable is not an allegory. You don't need to try to find some spiritual meaning in every single detail. Usually there's one major point that's being communicated, sometimes with some secondary detail, and you just want to grab on to that major point. Just uh, for clarification, when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're not talking about some geographic area. We're talking about uh, a dynamic reality. Um, Jesus in the Lord's Prayer says, your kingdom come, your will be done. I think the easiest thing is just to hold those two things together. Where God's kingdom is coming, God's kingdom is coming where his will is being done. That active sense of us, whoever us is, doing the will of God, that's an expression of God's kingdom or his rule or his reign. So as we talk through these parables of the kingdom, keep in mind that's what we're talking about. We're talking about God's activity in the world, the places where his will is being done. Before we get into this, I want to show you a clip. Um, the instructions are actually going to be on the video. The only additional one I'm going to say is no, no noise. Everything's in here. You're going to be counting. If it's hard for you to count without talking, hold your lips. No giggling. Just everybody needs to be focused if this is going to work. Go ahead, Greg. Well, the correct answer is 15 Some, anybody get it? <laughs> That's good, Greg. Thanks. I want to know, uh, honest, who missed the gorilla? Nice. When these guys, this thing, they came up with this thing, I think about 1999 is when it was copyrighted, and they first tested it at Harvard. I mean, those are smart kids, and half the people they showed the video to missed the gorilla. We get so focused on counting the passes that we miss the, literally, the gorilla in the middle of the scene. We're going to talk some about parables, and I want you to just keep that picture in mind. One of the questions to ask before we look at each parable specifically is how come Jesus, used, why did he use parables? If you read through the Old Testament, there's very few parables. Usually God is very direct in his speech. And now we have this message about the kingdom, which is the most important message ever given in the history of the earth. 
And parables by nature are indirect. Why? Why choose an indirect means of communicating such an important truth? Why doesn't Jesus just come out and say what he's got to say? How come so many stories just get to the punchline? And that's what we want to look at before we look at the parable specifically. This is starting in verse 10. When Jesus was alone, the twelve and the, and, um, and the others around him asked him about the parables. He said, the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that or so that this scripture may be fulfilled, that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. And then skip over to verse 33. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. So again, this question of how come with this, so, with this message that's so important, so necessary, why does he speak in such an indirect way? We said a couple of weeks ago, um, everything Jesus was doing ran counter to the expectations of the people and to the religious leaders of the time. He wasn't living up to their expectations. I'm going to read you a section from Daniel 2. This is kind of a long section. It will be up on the screen. A Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king of Babylon, has a dream. He doesn't understand the dream. He calls all of his wise men in. He says, you, you tell me the dream and tell me what the interpretation is. None of them can do it. And Daniel, who is a Jew at the time, um, well, he's always a Jew. Daniel, who's a Jew at that time, he's working under this, uh, this group of uh, wise men. And he, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you've heard of those three guys, all four of them get together and pray and say, we've got to figure this thing out or we're all, Nebuchadnezzar said he's going to kill all of them if nobody can come up with the interpretation of the dream. So this is Daniel going to Nebuchadnezzar. That's the circumstance. When you looked, O king, so that's Nebuchadnezzar. So this is Daniel's telling him his dream. There before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue is made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron and clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. And now we will interpret it to the king. You, are king, or you, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king 
what will take place in the future. The dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. So, Jesus, we said way back in the fall, Mark 1.15, his message is the gospel or the good news of the kingdom of God. If I'm a Jew and I hear the phrase kingdom of God, this is, this is what I'm pulling out of my memory box. Daniel 2, it says the kingdom of God is going to be like this stone and it's going to smash all the other kingdoms. So I'm a Jew and I'm living under this oppressive Roman government and I, when, when I hear this guy say kingdom of God, what I'm thinking is this mountain or this rock that's going to come and destroy this kingdom that I'm living under and that God is going to establish his kingdom on the earth. Daniel 7, this will be on the screen as well. Verse 13, in my vision, this is Daniel has a vision, in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, that's God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. In Mark 2.10, we looked at this story a few weeks ago, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. When he says that, these guys are flipping back to Daniel 7 in their mind and saying, the Son of Man. Now, what I read you in Daniel 2 and what I read you in Daniel 7, that doesn't look anything like what Jesus was doing at this time. He wasn't a military leader. He wasn't a political leader. He wasn't talking about overthrowing a government. He definitely, this, this whole idea of glory and power and splendor, we said before he was born in the middle of the night in a stable and the only people who knew were a handful of shepherds. It, he, he doesn't fit the profile. And what he's doing doesn't fit the profile. He is not living up to expectations. That's the first part. The second thing, Jesus is always speaking to multiple groups. He has, in, in Mark 4, he says he's got the people who have been given the secret to the kingdom of heaven, and then those on the outside. There's two groups, those who are following him, who are believing him, and then those who aren't. We talked about this last week. It's not that Jesus necessarily separates. It's our decision about him. It separates us, and he, you, we have to make a decision about him. Do I believe you or do I not? Am I going to follow you or am I not? So you have these two groups, those who are quote-unquote on the inside, his disciples who are following him, who are... Um, receiving this information about this is what the kingdom is. The secret is the kingdom has come near in the person of Jesus. He's telling them that. Then you have these on the outside as well who aren't getting the message. So we have Jesus is defying expectations. He's speaking to two groups. And then um, if you go back and read Mark 2, 1 through 3, 6, you'll see every time he's direct, people just, they, it doesn't work. When he speaks clearly about who he is and when he um, shows his power in some ways and demonstrates these signs that the kingdom is present in him. In Mark 2, 1 through 3, 6, the progression of frustration in the religious leaders, it just shoots through the roof. And by 3, 6, they're ready, literally, it says they're, they're ready to kill him. It doesn't work when he speaks explicitly to them because it's so, it's difficult for them to stop looking at the passes and to see the gorilla who's in there. They can't see him. They're so focused on their expectations and what they understand, how they understand God should work, that when there's this gorilla, Jesus, performing what are obviously divine works in their midst, they just can't see it, and they get so frustrated they want to kill him. Last week we looked at that verse in Mark 3, I think it's 29, the unforgivable sin, attributing to Satan the works of the Holy Spirit, saying that, yeah, Jesus did those things, but he did them because he was inspired or empowered 
by the devil to do those things. And the consequences of that are not, they're bad. It's eternal damnation for that. That's not the direction that anybody wants to go. That's not the direction Jesus wants anyone to go. If you squeak, smash all those things together, he's defying expectations. He's speaking to people who are on the outside. The history of him speaking to people on the outside directly is they reject him, and the consequences of rejecting him are eternal. That's why he uses parables. What he's trying to do is go in through the back door. They have all these expectations of this is what the Messiah should be. This is what the kingdom of God should be. He's not meeting those expectations. So rather than just saying flat out, this is the deal, take it or leave it, knowing that most of them are going to leave it, which is going to have eternal consequences for them, he just comes in subtly, circumventing their defenses through the back door with the parable. It's kind of like a time bomb. He's putting it in their heart. Hopefully it will explode at the right time when it will... It will demolish their expectations, and then they'll be able to see the gorilla. They won't still be looking at the passes anymore. They'll be able to see the gorilla right in front of them. Verse 21, he said to them, Do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on a stand? For whoever is hidden, excuse me, for whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the light or out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Consider carefully what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. Whoever has will be given more, and whoever does not have, even what he has, will be taken from him. If your Bible's like mine, it's an NIV. It says, do you bring in a lamp? Literally, that translation should be, does the lamp come? Does the lamp come? Jesus is referring to himself. He's the lamp. He's the light. And what he's saying is, do you think I've come to be hidden? Do you think I've come to be concealed? And the answer is, of course not. Of course not. And he's saying everything that's hidden about me, everything about my character and nature that is veiled right now, it ultimately is all going to be revealed. And we've talked about this before in Revelation 19, the white horse and the sword coming out of his mouth and whatever all that looks like. When he's going to be revealed, everybody's going to know. He says the coming of the Son of Man the second time will be like lightning. You could, it, it flashes in the east and you can see it in the west. Everybody is going to know that he's here that he's come back. The catch is, once we see him that way, we don't have any more opportunity to choose to follow him. The deal is done at that point. If you're with him, you're with him. If you're not, you're not. That's the end at that point. So he's saying, yes, ultimately, everything is going to be revealed. But the catch is, once it's revealed, it's too late for you to grab onto that revelation. Whatever decision you've already made, that's, that becomes permanent. That's why he says it's so important that we hear well. That doesn't sound fair. People who, you, people who have, they get more, and people who don't have, even what they have will be taken away. That doesn't sound fair, but it's a principle in the kingdom. Use it or lose it. When he shares stuff with us, he expects us to take that into our life, and then he shows us more. That's what he did with the 12 disciples. When they started following him, they didn't have a clue who he was. Not much, a little clue. And he progressively showed them more and more about his character. And they continued to bumble and stumble and miss it. He, he, they stuck with him, though. And he stuck with them, more importantly. And over time, they got a clear picture of who he is. We said last week, all of us who've made a decision to follow Jesus, we always start with this mixture of faith and doubt. We believe some and we don't believe other. It's, just, it's a mixture, and that's okay. We just can't stay there. 
And what, got, what Jesus is saying in these parables, and that, this whole idea about how you be careful how you hear is, when you hear something that's true, grab onto it, incorporate it into your life, and you'll get more truth. If you don't, if you choose to reject whatever truth has been given to you, you're going to lose that as well. You get that. Let's look at these parables. Starting in verse 1. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowds that gathered around him were so large that he got into a boat and sat at it, and, excuse me, and sat in it out on the lake, while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He brought them many. He taught them many things by parables. And his teaching said, "Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the places were scorched, and they withered because they had no root." Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, multiplying 30, 60, or even 100 times. Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. There's that idea again. Pay attention to what's being said. Skip over to verse 13, and he'll explain it. Then he said to them, that's to his disciples, don't you understand this parable? How then when you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seeds sown along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among the thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Thirty, sixty, or even a hundred times what was sown. Again, we're looking for the kind of the main point here. And to me, the main point in this parable is our hearts matter, which would have been a complete shock to the people who heard it at the time. These parables always contain something that's some shocking or surprising truth. None of it shocks us and surprises us. Many of you, you already know the punchline before I even start reading it. You've heard these parables 24 times, 25 times, it's, you get it. But for these guys, for them to think what the kingdom of God is in any way contingent coming, is in any way contingent upon my response, you read, you heard Daniel too. That rock didn't care about who it was hitting. They had, the, the statue had nothing to do with the rock coming and crushing it and establishing itself as this mountain. And what Jesus is saying is your hearts matter. Our hearts are the soil and um, there's only two types. There's productive or receptive, and there's unproductive or unreceptive. That's it. And then under this unreceptive soil, there's three subtypes of that. And what he's saying is, is it matters what our hearts and how we respond to this word. The word is the gospel or, or the, the message of the kingdom of God, that the kingdom is coming, that we can enter into it, and we can live under the rule and the reign of God. That's this message. And what Jesus is saying is, how are you going to respond to that? What, what's in here? For some of, just over here on the side, the picture here is typical Palestinian farming. It's a guy who goes out, they kind of broadcast the seeds, then they come back after and plow the ground. So this isn't a story about the farmer being careless and throwing this seed in places where it shouldn't have been or um, being really, you know, I've heard people say this is this shows the generosity of the farmer and he's willing to throw his seed even in bad soil. Not really. What they did is they had a field and you went out and you 
threw the seed down, then you went back later and you plowed it up. Opposite of us who dig furrows first and then plant the seeds in it. That's a side note. Just for you, people would have gotten this. This was exactly what they were used to seeing. So anyway, you've got this, the choice for us. Good, bad, soil. Productive, unproductive, receptive, not receptive. What makes soil not receptive? Jesus says, here's three things. One is that the soil is hard or resistant to the gospel. For I would say everyone in this room at some point in our life, we've been resistant to the gospel. We've said, eh, I'm not so sure whether that was totally, I'm not into Jesus at all, or whether that was in some part of our life. We've all experienced that, some people call it a hardness of heart, where we've been resistant to what God has wanted to say or do in our lives. It could be because we were rebellious, absolutely. It could be because we were apathetic. We just didn't see how it fit with our life. We had enough stuff going on. We didn't really see how Jesus fit. For some people, it's just a lack of awareness. They don't, they've never heard the gospel. They've never heard this invitation from Jesus, or they've never heard it in a way that they understand. And so for, for whatever reason, there's this resistance. There are places where their heart is hard towards, it stays on the surface. And Jesus says that's going to get swept away if it stays on the surface. And then there's this shallow soil, this rocky soil. It's, the problem is it's shallow. There's no deep roots. And so there's initially, it takes hold and, you know, there's a, a plant that comes up. But when difficulties come, uh, Jesus says persecution or trouble because of the word, this soil, this plant withers and dies. We talked about this a little bit last week. For all of, most of us, when we begin following Jesus, it's because he does something for us. He meets some need in our life, and that's fine. But at some point, we've got to move from vending machine mentality, give me, give me, give me, this is what you can do for me, to actually a personal relationship with him where we're saying, I want to be with you because of who you are, not because of what you do for me. That's ultimately where we want to get. We talked about that some last week. The This shallow soil, if that's you, it's most likely that you don't have a deep level of trust in your heart towards the Lord. You don't trust God very much. And when tough times come, you bail. So kind of the picture, Jesus says, follow me. And this is the people who gripe. My feet hurt. I'm tired. Where are we going? Are we there yet? We just walked past this place one time. That stuff. And that might be you in some level or, or me. I think of that, the Israelites in Exodus who grumbled. All, they're called grumblers throughout. They gripe about everything. We're hungry. God gives them food. We don't like the food. I want meat. He gives them meat. This is too much meat. Everything, they gripe about everything. And that's kind of, the, there's no depth there. The roots don't go down deep enough to handle things that we don't understand. You got $100 for Christmas. You have it in your wallet and you're saving it for whatever you save $100 for. You go home this afternoon. And you open it up. You're getting ready to go to the store, and it's gone. Your spouse says, oh, yeah, I took that. We needed groceries for Snow Jam 2011. We had to go back out and do that. Think about your response to him or her versus if you're like, where's my money? And your acquaintance down the street says, yeah, I took it. We needed it or whatever. You've got a deep relationship with your spouse. There's enough trust there that you can get through that awkwardness of her taking something of yours or him taking something of yours. With your neighbor, maybe not so much. 
You might decide he's not a, or she is not a trustworthy person. You start locking your doors. You don't have the depth of, there's not enough trust there to get you through that awkwardness of not knowing what, what he was thinking or why he did that. Why didn't he ask you first? All of those questions. You, have, you might have all those same questions with your spouse but because there's a deeper level of trust that gets you through that weird time that maybe it doesn't get you through with the person down the street. And the same thing's true with the Lord. If we don't have deep relationship with him, if we don't have a deep level of trust, there's going to be times where he's going to confuse us and where we're going to get frustrated in following him. And if our roots don't go deep, we're going to bail. Third is this weedy soil. It's, it's crowded. There's too many things going on. And Jesus lists three types of weeds. One, he says, are the worries of this world or the anxieties, the cares of this world. Those aren't sins, I don't think. It's just the stuff that we worry about. If I asked you right now in the back of your hand, write the three things that you're the most concerned about. Those three things that you write down, those are the worries of your life. Those are the things that chew up your heart and your mind in terms of your capacity, the things that you think about. And they're probably none of them are sinful things. It's just stuff you've got to think about. That stuff can crowd out following Jesus. The deceitfulness of wealth. It was true when Jesus said it. I think it's even more true where we live. Number one competitor to God is money. A lot of the things that God says, I'm going to do for you, money whispers over here, hey, I can do for you also. God says, I'll provide. Money says, I'll do that. God says, I'll give you security. Money says, I can give you that as well. God says, I'll confer on you status and worth and significance. And money says, hey, I can do that too. Jesus says, I'm the gate. I provide access. Money says, hey, I can get you access as well. I can't think of very many other things in our culture that compete with God on the same level that money does. And he says the deceitfulness of wealth, like every idol out there, the deceitfulness is they can't make good on their promises. Money says, I can do all these things, but you put your full weight on it, it can't do them. can't do them for long. We're, we're living in the middle of that. People who put all their weight on money, they're struggling inside. The whole world came crashing down for them. That's how all idols are. It's one of the reasons God hates idolatry is ultimately it comes up short. Can't make good on, his pro- on its promises. God's the only one who can. That's what differentiates him from everything else that we tend to put our weight on. He's the only one that can handle it. Desires for other things. Again, this isn't necessarily sinful things. It's probably not. You've heard that phrase, even the good is an enemy of the best. And I would say, yeah, that's, that's this. It's the good stuff that we're going after, whether it's a in our workplace or family life or whatever, personally, the goals that we have are um, things that we're striving for. Again, it's not it's nothing sinful. It's not even negative a lot of the time, but it can crowd out following Jesus. In Mark 9, I think it's 51 through 57, something, excuse me, Luke 9, 51 through 57, somewhere in there, there's this weird exchange, kind of the picture is Jesus and his disciples are walking down the road and these guys Three different guys come up and say, hey, we want to follow you. And Jesus says the, you know, the, to the first guy, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but I don't have any place to lay my head. And then another guy comes up, hey, I want to follow you. And Jesus all right. And he says, well, first let me go bury my father, okay? And Jesus says, no, let the dead bury their own dead. That's not very nice. 
And then the last guy comes up. Hey, I want to follow you. All right. He says, let me go back and kiss my mom goodbye. No. You gotta, we're walking here. There's nothing wrong with wanting to tell your mom goodbye. But if the picture is Jesus is on the move to the next town, and if you're going over here to bury your dad, or you're going over here to tell your mom goodbye, well, you've missed him because he's going over here. Those aren't bad things, but they got in the way of those people following Jesus. So he said, listen, you've got to make a choice. And the same thing can be true for us. Going after other things, even if they're not sinful things, if they distract us or they pull us away, again, it's difficult for us because he's not literally walking somewhere. It would be so much easier if he was walking from Marietta to Smyrna and we knew to be obedient, we've got to follow him to Smyrna. Because then if i got to go to Ackworth to tell my mom goodbye, well, I can't follow him to Smyrna and go to Ackworth at the same time. But that's not how it works for us. But the principle is still there. So what's the good news in this parable? We just hope that we're the good soil. We hope that we're the receptive soil. I would say no. Again, most of us, all of us at one point had hard hearts. And if any of you are following Jesus, you're a testimony that your heart can change. And I would say that's the good news. If you're, so, if, if you're someone and you would say, you know what, I, I am resistant to the Lord, either in general or in these areas of my life, there's good news for you. That can change. Hosea 6.3 talks about God's activity like rain that falls on the ground. And that rain will soften up the ground of your heart. Just ask him to do that. You don't have to do that yourself. You just ask him, God, I'm resistant to you when it comes to following you in my business. I don't think you know very much about insurance. And so I'm going to do this on my own. Just ask him. I know that's not right. Or I think that's not right. I'm just being honest. Would you soften my heart in that area? Show me. You know more about insurance than I do. And if I'm willing to follow you in my insurance business, it's going to be the best thing. Ask him that. Jesus, I don't buy this whole you're the only way deal. It's too hard for me. That leaves too many people out. Ask him about that. Will you soften my heart in this area that I could begin to see your heart for people? You love them more than I do anyway. Whatever that is, you get that. If you're somebody, you're, you're uh, shallow, if you are honest with yourself. You say, my roots, they're not going down very deep. I would, we talked about this last week. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Commit, for better or for worse, richer or poor, sickness and in health. Do that. I'm with you regardless of the circumstances. I don't have to see the end as long as I know that you're with me on this step. At, and get, ask him at, for the grace to do that. Take my roots deeper. If there are rocks in my own heart that are keeping me from developing a deep relationship, pull those things out. If your soil is crowded, the only thing I know to do with weeds is to pull them out. You cut them down, they grow back. You have to kill them. You pull them out by the root. If you're someone and it's, it's worry for you, the antidote for worry is love. Perfect love casts out fear. Worry is based in fear. If we got how much God loved us, if we understood that on any level, our worry meter would drop. The amount of worry that we have would decrease because we would get the king of kings who runs everything is also our father, and he loves us. So I don't have to worry about stuff. If you're someone and money's kind of a thing for you, you trip up on that, and if you were honest, you would say, yeah, it competes. With Jesus, He said you can't serve God and money, but I'm certainly trying to do both. If that's you, the only antidote I know is to give it away. You don't have to give it to us. 
just get rid of some of it. Every time you give, you can flush it down the toilet. It serves the same purpose. Every time you get rid of it, you're saying, you're not the boss of me. I'm the boss of you. If your struggle is a desire for other things, good things, you got plans, you got goals, there's stuff you want to accomplish. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. If you can choose to say, you know what, I'm going to trust that God's plan for my life is better than mine. Cut all that striving out. He's got plans for you too. He's got things he wants to accomplish through you as well. If you'll just be willing to trade yours for his, that weed would come out. All right, we're going to move. I'm running late, but i got five minutes. We'll be done. Verse 26. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scattered seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up. The seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. This is a great picture for people like me. If you're a doer, you feel like, man, I've got to make things happen. This parable is great news. What Jesus is saying is, it's not all on you. It doesn't matter if you're awake or asleep. God makes it grow. So we just looked at our response, our responsibility. My heart matters. That can feel weighty. Well, what if I miss it? And then Jesus comes back and says, but it's not all on you. This, there's power in the seed. If you'll receive this message of the kingdom, if you'll do your part to cultivate a heart that is good soil, God will plant that seed in there and it will produce fruit. You don't have to sweat that. It is not difficult for an apple tree to make apples. They don't sweat they don't stress. They don't, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to produce. They don't do that. They just make apples because that's what they do. If you're connected to Jesus, you're going to bear good fruit, and you don't have to sweat it. He'll do that through you. That's the, that's the good news in this parable. Well, what about when I don't see it? I feel like I'm walking in quicksand, or everything I try, it seems to fail. It's, I, the doors are always closed, or I keep messing up. If I was honest and I look back, I'd say, I don't see any fruit over the last three months or six months or nine months or 12 months of my life. The next parable is for you. What shall we say then the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. What Jesus is saying there is start small, ends up big. Zechariah 4.10, a great verse for some of you who are frustrated with what you see in your life right now. Don't despise the day of small things. He says to Zerubbabel, has this vision, is to rebuild the temple. And the, the, the word that comes to him from God is, don't despise the day of small things. The people will rejoice when they see the plumb line, the measuring tape in your hand. That's the beginning of this whole thing. Don't get upset because you can't see the whole thing yet. And the same thing is true for us. If you can believe that parable we just read, that God is at work, then even when you can't see it, believe the parable of the mustard seed, that eventually that rock is going to bust all the other kingdoms up. Eventually that mountain, it, we're going to see that mountain. Greg, will you show that picture? There's a difference between a mustard tree and a mustard seed. Mustard seeds are small. You see that next to a dime. Mustard trees are big. A two-year-old can plant a mustard seed. It takes a backhoe to plant a mustard tree. We want to see trees fully formed, 
something we can tie a rope swing to. That's what we want. You can't deny the presence of a tree. It's really easy to miss seeds. But God says, that's how I start. I start with seeds. Eventually, they're going to become a tree. But I start with a seed. Much easier to plant seeds. He doesn't need as much space. It doesn't require... There's not as much stuff that needs to happen. He didn't have to create as much space in our lives. Eventually, the tree wins. I think that's the picture for us as we close. You need to take heart, take confidence, be encouraged. If you're doing your part to maintain this good soil in your heart, that's 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 all you can do. Trust that the message that you've received, this this word that God has given, if you're connected, it's going to grow. It's going to produce fruit. And even when you can't see it, you don't need to worry because ultimately, he wins. There's going to be a tree and it's going to produce fruit in your life. Isaiah 55. I was thinking about all three of these parables to me remind me of this. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Let's pray. The surprise in all three of those parables, if you were a first century Jew, the surprise for you would have been that the kingdom of God is not undeniable. The kingdom of God doesn't come in such a way that it completely reorients and reorders society. That it comes subtly and even gradually in some ways. For us, where we're sitting here, I think the the application point is similar. God wants to work in your life. He wants to work in my life. He doesn't just want to work in us. He wants to work through us. And it's seeds that he wants to plant. Some of us, we want to jump straight to the end. You got somebody and you know they need Jesus and you're trying to plant a tree in their heart. Don't. just Seeds are fine. That's the way the Lord's chosen to work. For, for each of us, kind of the encouragement. And God, this is my prayer for us. Is that we would not be so focused on our expectations of what you should or shouldn't do. God, that we not be so focused on whatever it is that tends to crowd out your word to us, whether it's worries or striving, idols, our own resistance, that we would not, those things would not cause us to miss the gorilla in the middle of our life, which is you at work. God, we don't want to be like these guys who had eyes and couldn't see and ears who couldn't hear. We want, to, we want to get it when you're speaking to us. We want to hear that. For some people, even as I pray that, they're thinking, that doesn't work for me. Lord, I pray that you begin to speak to that heart in a way that he or she would understand. And that they would know, hey, that's, God, that's the gorilla. That's God in my life. Some of us, we're, just, we're busy and we miss it. Give us eyes to see where you're at work. 
ultimately, Lord, my prayer for each person in this room is that we, each of us would have a tree and there would be fruit. Not just for us, but for the people who are connected to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Bo's going to um, close us out. Some of you probably already need to go. We are running.